I think most of you know by now that um, I love having kids in the service. And so when I say keep Ike here, keep your child here no matter what, I, I truly mean it. That's part of the reason why we put the rocker in the back and we have toys uh, for kids to play with. Um, if I could have my way, we would have everyone of all ages here together for the whole time. Um, we even have sound enhancing equipment for in case they they get a little loud and a little rambunctious. And if you need a little assistance in hearing, we have help for that. Um, and years ago, uh, I asked that we move the scripture readings to an earlier part of the service so that we could all be together, all ages, uh, to hear the word of God. And with that, um, I also try to make sure that the essence of the children's message that I give and the essence of the adult message I give are one and the same. One of the major problems <laughs> with my grand ideal, however, is that there are a lot of stories in the scriptures that are just completely inappropriate for children, <laughs> for little children. Um, inappropriate, not so much because they are too complex for their minds, that comes up occasionally, but it's more so that they're inappropriate because they are far too graphic in their depiction of violence and sex and evil in general. For as much as some Christians uh, can be blamed for trying to avoid the real world, the scriptures are entirely immersed in the fullness of human life, both the good and the bad. I sometimes worry about some of the scriptures that I will be reading, knowing that there are going to be kids hearing. Uh, I worry that they will give the kids and even some of us adults nightmares. And every now and then I come across a story like the one for this morning when I just couldn't do it. There was, I just, I would not read this in front of the kids. The story was just too graphic for young minds. And yet, these stories are in our Bible our holy scriptures. For us adults, these are stories that we are meant to hear for whatever reasons. And so this morning for the kids, I skipped over our main text, the gospel reading. Uh, I've mentioned this before from Advent through a little bit past Easter. Uh, this year, I'm following the, the, what's called the Protestant Common Lectionary, which is a group of, of uh, people who have chosen the scripture readings um, for each Sunday for the entire year for any Protestant churches that would like to use and follow the same guide. Um, and this year they are working, it coincided, they're working through the gospel according to Matthew, which is the gospel that we were set to look through anyway. So I decided, okay, I'll let the, uh, the lectionary editors decide what gospel readings we have each Sunday. So they are responsible for this morning's 
selection and I wanted to make sure that that's why I'm doing this. I'm not otherwise inclined to just focus on this particular story. And for the kids, like I said, I, I just couldn't do it. Uh, but for us adults, here we go. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have, her, to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, I guess. Let's be sure that we are clear about the evil that is at work in this story. Herod the Tetrarch was one of the many sons of Herod the Great, which we had read about last week. Philip, who's also mentioned here, is also a son of Herod the Great, uh, but from a different mother. So Herod, and Tetrarch, Herod the Tetrarch and Philip are half-brothers. On a trip to Rome one time, which is where Philip lived, Herod the Tetrarch fell for Philip's wife and brought her back to Palestine with him. Herod had to divorce his actual wife for a completely illegitimate reason, and then he married Herodias, was his brother's wife's name. All of this was against Jewish practice. And so, John the Baptist called out Herod Tetrarch for the wrongs he had done and did so publicly. And I like that the NIV translates it uh, as kind of an ongoing thing. Now, John, now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prayer. Uh, for John had been, had been saying to him. This took place it was more than just one time. Uh, and he said it publicly. Doing so weakened Herod the Tetrarch's standing with the more orthodox community, and it put John in the path of Herod's power, in a dangerous path with Herod's power. In fact, we know Herod 
arrests John for condemning his actions publicly. Then, at Herod's birthday party, his brother's daughter dances in front of the men. This was unusual for the time. Dale Bruner, a former professor at Whitworth, writes that dancing was actually in vogue in first century Jewish life. I know Dale Bruner well enough that even though he wrote this in the 80s, uh, he was, or 90s, he was not thinking of Madonna when he wrote that dancing was in vogue. But every time I read that, I think of that. Um, but dancing was in vogue in uh, first century Jewish life as a sign of joy, but it was usually practiced almost exclusively by men, even rabbis. Bruner also gives some background, uh, background on how this story's portrayal of the two women written about it is unusual for the Gospels. He points out, quote, the women in this story are unique. No woman, I hadn't really thought about this until he wrote this, no woman is reported to have denied the identity of Jesus in the Gospels. In other words, most of the time in the Gospels, the women are portrayed a lot more favorably than a lot of the men, most of the time. Bruner goes on and says, the closest women get to being bad in the Gospels is here in this story. So we have that going for us as well. Uh, in his worked up state, Herod Tetrarch makes a very rash oath and that darkens the whole story. And this is the part that caught me that I just thought, I can't read this in front of the kids. Verses eight through 11. Prompted by her mo mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but he'd made this oath. The dinner guests are all there. They're waiting for him to keep to his word. And so he had John beheaded in prison. He had the head brought on a platter, presented to the daughter, and the daughter took this human, severed human head on a platter and gave it to her mother. That's as sick as it gets as human beings. Now, most of us have heard this story, or even really just this part. Bring me his head on a platter. It's almost a, a cartoonish type thing. But that's not the way the scriptures depict this. This is a severed human head on a platter. And then, again, so... Uh, for us as adults, okay, we can, we might have been dead into this somewhat. Um, hopefully this sort of brings it up. But just think about if the kids had been here and we're talking about this. I just couldn't do it. And then the story closes with John's best friends coming to claim the rest of his body without the head to bury at least what they could. And we don't know what happened to the severed head after this. And that's our gospel story for this morning. <laughs> that's it. This is what they gave us to work with. What on earth is the purpose of this story being in our holy scriptures? And why out of all the stories that the editors of the common lectionary could have picked, did they pick this story?
There's no mention of God or encounter with God of any significance. There's no great revelation or change for the good. In fact, Dale Dale Bruner sums up our story. Everything, everything Jesus commanded against in his Sermon on the Mount contributed to the death of the Baptist at the palace. Disrespect for the law, bitter anger, lust, adultery, oaths, revenge, and hatred. Everything he preached against in the Sermon on the Mount is present here. I can't speak for God or for the editors of the lectionary. They may have very different reasons for their uses of this story. But for me, and I think for many of us, at least one thing this story does is assure us that our God and our scriptures confront the real world. Other than uh, the Bible opening, and for a very short time, in the Garden of Eden, other than that little time, the scriptures do not dwell in some idyllic alternative world. Jesus wasn't born once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. Jesus confronted the same world that we live in, a world with adultery and anger and unjust imprisonment, a world of lust and revenge and vicious murder. And yet, even confronting all of that directly, God still encourages us to have hope, to have hope in the anointed one. Isaiah saw it centuries before. I love the way that that ends about this servant redeemer. This is what the Lord says, the redeemer, the holy one of Israel. Um, In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness, be free. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth and to all people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of this grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, is faithful. These words are so much more powerful for me knowing that they were written even with a full understanding and awareness of the real world that we live in. One of the most troubling issues for many of us these days, we've shared this recently, is 
trying to confront the real world while at the same time maintaining or even trying to find peace in our spirits. Being aware of what's really happening to people and to the planet, while at the same time being just as aware of the presence of God within us and around us. Our scriptures reveal this same conflict. Confronting the real world and maintaining hope and peace. And I think by the scriptures doing this, I believe they also give us at least some direction for us to take. And that is that we won't find peace by hiding. Jesus regularly confronted real evil, pain, and suffering. And it's with his spirit at work in us that we have the power to do the same. Every every now and then we also see Christ's spirit at work in the lives of human beings confronting the real world in ways that give us courage to do the same. Tomorrow we celebrate the life of one of the most important human beings, important such persons in the history of our country, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Somehow this man confronted the fullness of our world, our real world, all its hatred and violence and wickedness, and at the same time acted in peaceful ways with protest, prayer, and spiritual strength. He is an exceptional follower of Christ for us to honor. As exceptional as Dr. King was at both confronting the real world and being filled with the Holy Spirit, the only one who can fully confront the evil of this world to the depths from which it comes and who can maintain even greater hope in God is Jesus the Christ. But the good news is he is with us here in all of our reality. So listen again to the truth that Paul proclaims, knowing that the scriptures have confronted fully, and Paul knows what's happening in this world. To the church of God in Corinth and Queen Anne, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. From, our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end. From stories like this morning's, we know that these words of Paul are real. Thanks be to God.